The following program contains content that is not suitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. And now, coming to you from an undisclosed location. It's the Novus Ordo Watch Trapcast. You've got to be kidding. You can't make the stuff up. No one causes chaos like Chaos Frank. And these last two weeks prove it. Welcome, folks. It's Tratcast number 13. And this is a special edition dealing exclusively with the big event that took place on April 8th, 2016, the release of the so-called post-synodal apostolic exhortation Amoris Laetitia. We've been the official Amoris Laetitia Chaos Watch headquarters, and it's only fair that we should dedicate an entire podcast to just this document and the turmoil that has resulted from it. The Joy of Love. That is the meaning of the title. And uh, (laughs) look, you know that Francis really wanted this thing to be called Amores Gaudium. But in the Vatican, they told him, forget it, man. You can't have everything be Gaudium. This ain't going to fly. Okay, People are not going to buy it. Besides, a lot of people probably already have their web browsers and email boxes set to block anything that has the word Gaudium in it. So... We need an alternative, okay? So, Letizia it is. Well, at least that's my theory, okay? My apologies, by the way, for being so late with this Tradcast, but you know how it is. Things don't always go as planned, and... Um, you know, it's actually a good thing that we've had a few days since the release of this uh, Letizia monster because that allowed us to um, go through a lot of different reactions and commentaries from various camps. And so that was actually a good thing. Oh, yeah. By the way, did you hear? John Veneri and Chris Ferreira have already said that they're going to resist this thing. Yeah. No, really now. This time, I think it's going to be a really bad resistance, too. But uh, more on that later. Before we begin, we need to run our special jingle for this. Since Francis is the author of this document, you are about to get everything from the Jorge's mouth. From the Jorge's mouth. All right, so a quick reminder 
anything we reference here in this podcast as far as documents, videos, and so on will all be linked on our show page at tradcast.org. So you can get all the information talked about here and can verify everything for yourself, okay? So remember that. Go to tradcast.org and look for episode 13. Tradcast. If we had to describe Amoris Letizia in one single word, I think it would be however, or a synonym, you know, like uh, nevertheless, but although, on the other hand, at the same time, something like that. Because this document reads like Vatican II, blah, blah, joy, blah, blah, ideal, blah, blah, can never change, blah, blah, however blah, blah, pastoral, blah, blah, sociocultural context, blah, blah, discernment, blah, blah, walking together, blah, blah, at the same time, and so on. So yeah, with this document, it is definitely Vatican II all over again and in every sense. We have an overlong, modernist, ambiguous text that contains all sorts of explosive suggestions without necessarily stating them outright. And we have two main sides, one arguing that, relax, it's all good, nothing's changed, this is just pastoral, and besides, Francis affirms the indissolubility of marriage. And on the other side, people either panicking or celebrating because they can tell that the document does indeed provide an opening for giving the Novus Ordo sacraments to those who live in adultery, fornication, or worse. And that's exactly how it was at Vatican II. And we all know how that worked out. And you know, it's funny, but when this thing came out uh, on April 8th, it only took a few hours before the first commentary got posted online that argued that we need to read the exhortation In light of tradition, you know, hermeneutic of continuity and all that. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We'll cover this more later. First, let me give you the rundown on what transpired on the morning of April 8th, the day this sexhortation, as it has been called, was released. The press conference began at 11.30 a.m. Rome time. That was 5.30 a.m. Eastern time. And it was priceless. It was roughly two hours long. And we have the video for you in our show notes. So you can watch it yourself with the English audio if you want to do some penance. The four presenters were two bogus cardinals, the Italian Lorenzo Baldessari and the Austrian Dominican Christoph Schönborn. And uh, then an Italian married couple who are both academics. The husband, an expert in the situation ethics of the French phenomenologist and existentialist Maurice Merleau-Ponty, and his wife, a theologian whose doctoral dissertation was on the phenomenology of Christianity. Yeah, perfect for the new church. I mean, you wouldn't want anyone to confuse this with Catholicism. So that setup was good. Uh, Cardinal Baldessari went first and gave an outline and a summary of the document with some quotes and stuff. But one thing he didn't mention was that the ghostwriter of the document, meaning the main person who wrote the draft that Francis then revised and issued as his own, was Smoochie. Yeah, 
we call him Smoochie here. It's Archbishop Victor Manuel Fernandez, the rector of the so-called Pontifical Catholic University of Argentina, one of Francis's best buddies, his own personal theologian, in fact. Why do we call him Smoochie? Because in the 1990s, he wrote a book called Heal Me With Your Mouth, The Art of Kissing. Yeah. And uh, why don't we just leave it at that? We, we reported on this some time ago, actually. And uh, we'll certainly put a link to that in our show notes, as well as a link to a brief video we made introducing Francis's ghostwriter, Mr. Fernandez. We also recently put together a movie poster spoof just for Fernandez. Yeah, the movie is called The Jorge Whisperer, with our apologies to Robert Redford. Anyway, so Baldessari introduces the document, then comes Schoenborn, Christoph Schoenborn, the Cardinal Archbishop of Vienna, Austria. And if you thought Fernandez was bad, you ain't seen nothing yet. We'll have more on Schoenborn later in this broadcast, but for now, the press conference. Schoenborn got into what everyone was wanting to hear about, those infamous irregular unions, irregular family situations. The new pastorally correct term for either shacking up before marriage, i.e. fornication, or adultery or sodomitical unions. No one must feel condemned, Schoenborn said. And then he went on to talk about the new pastoral language used since the synods on the family in 2014 and 2015, where the tone started to gain an esteem for the reality of family situations without judging or condemning anyone. And that this tone is now also present in the exhortation Amoris Laetitia. Schoenborn blathered on for over 30 minutes in total, and then the married academic spoke uh, for about 20 minutes, and then finally it was time for questions from the journalists in the audience. And of course, right away, the first few questioners asked about, guess what? Communion for the divorced and remarried because ultimately that's all they care about. That's all they wanted to know, and that's all they were there for. No one, no one really cares about all the joy stuff, okay? Schoenborn, of course, uh, wouldn't give them a clear answer, which is why three journalists in succession had to ask about the issue and wanted clarification. But of course, there's no such thing as a modernist speaking clearly. So... In the end, after Schoenborn was done answering, and I bet it was a total of 10 minutes or so of him clarifying, after he was done, they basically knew as much as they did before they asked him. So the fact that even at the official presentation of the document, no clear answers were given indicates that the text itself is ambiguous, and this is exactly what we're going to see now. Everyone in the new church is going to interpret it as desired, which will ultimately lead to the situation that whether or not an irregular couple can receive the Novus Ordo sacraments will simply depend on what Novus Ordo parish they attend, or at least what diocese they're in. 
And while some tenacious conservative Novus Ordos will always argue that nothing has changed, the practical reality will be that anyone who wants to receive communion will now be allowed. Just like with Vatican II. Just like with annulments. Just like with eating meat on Fridays. And so on. We've been through this many times before. No one will know or care what it may actually say on the books in some obscure document or whether some footnote was only ambiguous or anything. That may work great for a show on EWTN or Catholic Answers or, or for a new book from Ignatius Press. You know, what the Pope really said. But the reality is quite different. Just read the headlines in the press. Everyone is saying that Francis has opened the door to communion. It's the door to hell, of course, but nobody cares about that. These people don't even believe in hell anymore. Now, please don't say that, oh, uh, that's just the evil media trying to hijack the Pope's document. Well, if that's the case then why won't the Vatican press office denounce the media for spreading a false message? And who made the document ambiguous in the first place, by the way? This is actually a point the uh, Vaticanist and author Antonio Sochi brought up. Since the secular newspapers are celebrating now that the Pope has opened communion to the divorced and remarried, then... If that's not correct, why doesn't the Vatican press office contradict and respond to those false headlines? I mean, they always immediately rush to deny anything else that supposedly isn't true, right? So if one paper says Pope has a cough, there is an immediate, no, he doesn't. So anyway, oh, for the record, the day before the release of the document, we made the following prediction on our blog, The Novus Ordo Wire. Here's what we said, quote, Although we are but a few hours away from the release of Amoris Letizia, we'll go ahead with the following prediction. We predict that the document will offer a pastoral synthesis to give each side a little something. The conservatives, as always, will receive words. The dogma regarding the indissolubility of marriage remains untouched. A valid marriage between two baptized people can only end at death. No one can change this, yada yada. The liberals, on the other hand, will receive the action. With the agreement of the local ordinary, pastors may decide that specific individuals in exceptional circumstances, wink wink, can receive the sacraments. This, we predict, will be the authorized practice at de facto permission at the discretion of the local bishop. They may call it toleration, speak of conscience, or couch it in other pastorally sensitive language. But in essence, this is what will happen, we anticipate. Coupled with Francis's drive-through annulments, the result will be a virtual free-for-all. Chaos is guaranteed. Unquote. That was our prediction, and as we now know, it was spot on. All right, it's been roughly two weeks now, <laughs> and also a very rough two weeks now, since uh, Amoris Letizia was released, and uh, there has been a gigantic flood of reactions to the thing. At this point, we have posted well over 150 links 
to commentaries and analyses on our blog. And uh, the funny thing is that reactions have differed sharply. You have anything from people commenting that, oh, this is a wonderful document which does not grant an opening for reception of the sacraments to those who are publicly unworthy, and then some saying that there is a cautious opening, and others still saying it is a catastrophe, a complete disaster, a rupture with 2,000 years of church tradition, and so on. And you know, all these different reactions really underscore exactly what we've been saying here with regard to it being Vatican II all over again. The document is written in such a way as to permit many different interpretations, and that is exactly what will happen on the local level. Each diocesan bishop will have it mean whatever he wants to, and then you will have a pastoral nightmare. And of course, that is absolutely fully intended. I can already hear some conservative nobles orders bragging that they live in an ultra-conservative diocese because their bishop doesn't give communion to public adulterers. And that will then be the new standard of orthodoxy. I mean, it's pathetic. So, I don't know, I, I'm pretty sure that we'll see a bloodbath figuratively speaking, of course, in some parishes where the pastor is conservative and will refuse to heed his liberal bishop's directive to give communion to anyone who else. Want to bet? That'll be, that'll be really interesting to watch. Oh, and by the way, how will this affect the indult communities, like the Fraternity of St. Peter, the Institute of Christ the King, and so on? Just wait till the first public adulterers, fornicators, or, or sodomites line up at the communion rail. That'll produce fireworks. The Society of St. Pius X, of course, will do whatever they please, as uh, they always do. And there's a lot to say about them, too, because there have been some significant developments as of late, but we can't get into that now. Maybe we'll leave that for a future Tratcast. I'll just mention that Francis has now announced, as we expected and as we predicted in September of last year, that he is not letting the faculties he's given to the SSPX for confession expire in November, but rather they will be extended. Okay, so not just for the year of mercy, but indefinitely. The timing of this announcement, of course, was impeccable because it basically coincided with the release of Amoris Laetitia. And so, you see, each side got a little something. Well, you can't upset those traditionalists too much, else they might catch on and suspect that maybe Mr. Bergoglio is not who he claims to be. So, great job, Francis. That was very good timing. All right, so much for the introductory remarks. Here's how we'll proceed with the remainder of the show. We'll take a quick break now, then we'll have the second segment, and there we will look at some of the highlights, or, or lowlights actually, of what Amoris Letizia actually says. And then we'll break again briefly and come back with a third segment in which we'll go through some of those many, many commentaries and reactions from various camps, especially our favorites from the Recognize and Resist camp, 
where John Venneri and Chris Ferreira have already announced that they're going to resist this thing. Yeah, they're going to resist real badly this time, I think. Be right back. Tradcast. Ignore this podcast at your own risk. Tradcast is a production of NovusOrtoWatch.org. We watch the Vatican II Church so you don't have to. Go to NovusOrtoWatch.org, NovusOrtoWatch.org, and see for yourself that the Vatican II Church is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Episode 13, second segment. Glad you're still here. Tratcast is produced by Novos Ordo Watch at NovosOrdoWatch.org. Free of charge. You're welcome. All right, this is going to be pretty painful now, but we need to start looking at the actual text of Amoris Laetitia, the uh, post-synodal apostolic exhortation, which is, of course, as apostolic as Barack Obama is pro-life. The document itself consists, in its English version, of 254 pages of text and almost 400 footnotes. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to read you all of it, because that will be unconstitutional. You know, cruel and unusual punishment. But some penance is necessary and salutary for all of us, so I've picked out some of the most outrageous paragraphs written by the Argentinian apostate Jorge Bergoglio, commonly known by his stage name Pope Francis. I will tell you first which paragraph I'm quoting from, and it won't necessarily be the whole paragraph each time. Heavens no. Uh, So if you want to read the whole thing in context, you can certainly do so by clicking on the link for Amoris Laetitia that we've posted in our show notes at tradcast.org. All right. We'll start with paragraph two. Here Francis presents himself as the great synthesizer. Quote, The debates carried on in the media, in certain publications, and even among the church's ministers range from an immoderate desire for total change without sufficient reflection or grounding to an attitude that would solve everything by applying general rules or deriving undue conclusions from particular theological considerations." In other words, Francis is the big reconciler between those two evil extremes, and he's going to come down right in the middle because, as you know, virtue is in the middle. Heaven forbid we should apply general theological rules. (laughs) I mean, that would start to sound like, you know, moral theology. Can't have that. 
Next, uh, paragraph uh, three. Paragraph three has this cool stuff. Quote, since time is greater than space, I would make it clear that not all discussions of doctrinal, moral, or pastoral issues need to be settled by interventions of the magisterium. Unity of teaching and practice is certainly necessary in the church, but this does not preclude various ways of interpreting some aspects of that teaching or drawing certain consequences from it. This will always be the case as the Spirit guides us towards the entire truth until he leads us fully into the mystery of Christ and enables us to see all things as he does. Each country or region, moreover, can seek solutions better suited to its culture and sensitive to its traditions and local needs. Unquote. Did you get that? Here Francis is already muddying the waters. Instead of using his supposed papal office to clarify and settle teaching and show how it is and isn't to be applied, he instead does the opposite. He suggests that people better not think that there is only one way to understand something. It's typical modernism. Okay, so he's, he's injecting this uncertainty, but of course, without saying so explicitly. And of course, he's hiding behind plausible deniability by using uh, terms like some aspects of teaching and undue conclusions from particular theological considerations. It's vintage modernist BS. And by BS, I don't mean Barbara Streisand. And notice how he says effectively that this attitude of the church can't give sound and binding pastoral advice is because the spirit, which one, by the way, uh, won't lead us into all truth until we're in heaven. You know, like we need pastoral advice then. I mean, what a moron. No, actually, he's not a moron. He's very shrewd, a very shrewd modernist. The whole point of pastoral guidance is to ensure we make it to heaven. And it is the right and duty of the Catholic Church being the divinely established guardian of all matters pertaining to faith and morals to interpret and apply God's divine law, in, in this case, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery, to every situation that occurs. It's that simple. That is the job of the Catholic Church and of the Pope. Not that Francis is one, but, you know, you get the idea. And uh, how God's divine law is to uh, be applied in each and every circumstance is not dependent on local customs, traditions, or culture. So what Francis is doing here, he's totally undermining Catholic principles. And, of course, the reason why uh, he's doing that is obvious. Let me also say something real quick about this idiotic but uh, academic-sounding principle that he came up with, uh, time is greater than space. As anyone can immediately see, you cannot compare time and space because that's comparing apples to oranges. No, not even that, actually. Um, it's more like comparing bicycles to calories, right? I mean, you can't do it. So to say that time is greater than space, that's like saying that this book is bigger than a dream, okay? It's absurd. It's a category mistake. 
So it's easy to see why if that is going to be your starting principle, an absurdity like time is greater than space, well, then any conclusions you try to derive from such a principle will also have to be absurd. The next paragraph in Amoris Laetitia that we're going to look at is paragraph 52. Now, I warn you, keep a barf bag handy for this one. Quote, We need to acknowledge the great variety of family situations that can offer a certain stability, but de facto or same-sex unions, for example, may not simply be equated with marriage. No union that is temporary or close to the transmission of life can ensure the future of society, unquote. Well, there you have it. The disgusting practices of sodomites may not simply be equated with the sacrament of holy matrimony. Well, that's encouraging. But of course, sodomite unions are now considered part of family situations that can offer a certain stability. See, the only problem Francis seems to have with sodomite relations is that they're close to the transmission of life and therefore can't ensure the future of society. But hey, at least that, right? My gosh, the guy's so conservative. It's not even funny. <sighs> I'm getting nauseous. Oh, uh, some people will say, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Francis also talks about same-sex unions in paragraph 251. And there he says, quote, There are absolutely no grounds for considering homosexual unions to be in any way similar or even remotely analogous to God's plan for marriage and family, unquote. So there, right? Well, not quite. You see, if you read paragraph 251 in its entirety, you will see that Francis is merely quoting the Relatio Finalis, the final document of the Synod on the Family of 2015, and leaves it uncommented. He simply quotes what the Synod Fathers said, and he doesn't say whether he agrees or disagrees with that. So, uh, this is actually very clever of him, if you think about it, because now the reader gets to determine what to make of it. So, as usual, Francis wants to confuse rather than clarify. Next, uh, paragraph 156, quote, Every form of sexual submission must be clearly rejected. This includes all improper interpretations of the passage in the letter to the Ephesians, where Paul tells women to, quote, be subject to your husbands, unquote. And that's Ephesians 5.22. Uh, Francis continues, This passage mirrors the cultural categories of the time, but our concern is not with its cultural matrix, but with the revealed message that it conveys, unquote. Uh, and then he uh, goes on to talk about what he calls reciprocal submission. Yeah, reciprocal submission. That always works out great in practice, right? When the husband submits to the wife and the wife submits to the husband at the same time. Awesome. But this is not just crazy, it is blasphemy. Because Francis is saying that St. Paul's exhortation uh, for wives to be subject to their husbands is just a cultural thing and not God's law. 
it was actually John Paul II uh, who first introduced this blasphemy uh, back, I think, in the 1980s, where all of a sudden this passage, Ephesians 5.22, was reinterpreted. Oh, guess what passage Francis didn't quote from Ephesians 5? First, he didn't quote the rest of verse 22, nor what follows right after in verse 23, namely, quote, as to the Lord. Let women be subject to their husbands as to the Lord. Because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he is the savior of his body, unquote. Minor detail right? Minor detail. The Catholic Church is the bride of Christ Jesus, the Lord. And guess who submits to whom here? Obviously, the church submits to her divine groom and not the other way around. What a devil Francis is. Next, paragraph 159. Yes, I know this is painful, but for me too, okay? So I'm suffering with you. Paragraph 159, regarding virginity, quote, St. Paul recommended virginity because he expected Jesus' imminent return and he wanted everyone to concentrate only on spreading the gospel. Nonetheless, he made it clear that this was his personal opinion and preference, not something demanded by Christ. All the same, he recognized the value of the different callings. Reflecting on this, St. John Paul II noted that the biblical texts give no reason to assert the inferiority of marriage, nor the superiority of virginity or celibacy based on sexual abstinence. Rather than speak absolutely of the superiority of virginity, it should be enough to point out that the different states of life complement one another, and consequently that some can be more perfect in one way and others in another." Unquote. Now, this is heresy. Heresy, folks. The Council of Trent defined infallibly, if anyone says that the married state is to be preferred to the state of virginity or celibacy and that it is not better and happier to remain in virginity or celibacy than to be united in matrimony, let him be anathema. That's the Council of Trent, Session 24, Canon 10. And you can look it up if you have Denzinger uh, at home or even online. It's Denzinger number 980. All right, so, uh, hey, we've got a little heresy there. <laughs> no big deal. What's, what's one more at this point, right? Really. All right, our next paragraph is, oh, yes, paragraph 296. This is where the really hot potatoes are. All right, beginning with paragraphs 296 through uh, 312. Now, don't, don't worry, we're not going to go through all of those. But uh, we'll start with 296, and the first thing to notice here is the title. The heading of the section that begins with paragraph 296. In the English translation, the heading says, The Discernment of Irregular Situations. And the word irregular is in quotes. In the non-English translations of the document, the heading says, the discernment of so-called irregular situations. So, first of all, 
What are those situations that are irregular? Well, you guessed it. Any sort of sexual union outside of marriage. See, we don't call them adultery, fornication, or sodomy anymore because that could offend adulterers, fornicators, and sodomites. Now they're just irregular situations. No, 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 not even that. They're only so-called irregular situations. Because you know how it is. In a few weeks, some effeminate Novus Ordo Presbyter is going to figure out that it is really not nice to suggest that there is something irregular in people's behavior. I mean, that's just pure discrimination, right? Who are you to say what's regular and what isn't? Besides, how irregular can it be if everybody does it? This kind of language is exclusionary. It's hateful. It's bigoted. It's got to go. You can already hear them yell, no one is irregular. So expect that in the very near future. Okay, Expect that those irregular situations are going to become quite regular in Novus Ordo parlance. And they're going to find some new term instead. Um, perhaps something like different situations or non-traditional situations or something like that could probably have a contest as to who can come up with the best term to describe what used to be known as adultery, fornication, sodomy. All right, anyway, here we go. Paragraph 296, quote, The way of the church is not to condemn anyone forever. It is to pour out the balm of God's mercy on all those who ask for it with a sincere heart. For true charity is always unmerited, unconditional, and gratuitous. Consequently, there is a need to avoid judgments which do not take into account the complexity of various situations and to be attentive by necessity to how people experience distress because of their condition. Unquote. Now, this is so dumb, it really shouldn't need any comment. The way of the church is not to condemn anyone forever. And exactly what source does he quote or cite for this? None, of course. Well, I mean, he quotes himself, actually, okay, from a, a homily in February of 2015. Yeah, nice try. Look, our Lord says in Matthew 25, 41, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. And in the Apocalypse, we read the following, chapter 20, verses 9 and 10. And there came down fire from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil who seduced them was cast into the pool of fire and brimstone, where both the beast and the false prophet shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. But, Francis says, the way of the church is to pour out the balm of God's mercy on all who ask for it with a sincere heart. Mm. Wrong again. Sincerity alone is not enough to be forgiven. You have to be contrite, and not just any kind of contrition suffices either. 
You must be supernaturally contrite, for example, to receive God's merciful forgiveness. And that means you must be sorry for your sins, either because they offend God, who is infinitely good and whom you have infinitely offended, or because you fear the loss of heaven or the pains of hell. Such are supernatural motives. This is necessary. On the other hand, um, merely natural motives would be if you if your sins if you were sorry for your sins because they contradict the natural law, for example, or because they've caused you some temporal affliction, you know, pain, embarrassment, financial loss, or whatever. So that's one thing. Contrition has to be supernatural. And it has to be a, a, a number of other things as well, but this is enough now to ref, for, for the moment to refute Francis's lie that a sincere heart is all that is needed to be forgiven, okay? It's simply not true. Sincerity alone is not enough. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. And then uh, as far as uh, avoiding harsh judgments that don't take into account the complexity of various situations or how people experience distress and stuff. I mean, if only Pope Clement VII had thought of that, you know, with regard to King Henry VIII. I mean, the distress and stuff. Come on, it was a complex situation, all right? I mean, does anyone think that if the Novus Ordo sect had been around in the 1530s, that they would have refused Henry VIII an annulment? Fat chance. All right. Next paragraph. 297. Francis. Quote, It is a matter of reaching out to everyone, of needing to help each person find his or her proper way of participating in the ecclesial community, and thus to experience being touched by an unmerited, unconditional, and gratuitous mercy. Unquote. We'll stop right here for a minute. What he says here is false, okay, at least in the way in which he means it. Mercy is not unconditional, and the New Testament is full of examples proving that. And while mercy is gratuitous and unmerited, that is true only in the sense that for God to offer us pardon of our sins at all is gratuitous on his part and totally unmerited by us. But now that he has gratuitously deigned to offer us pardon at all, he has established that we merit certain graces. And of course, forgiveness can only be obtained if there is true repentance. So, the fact that God allows you to receive forgiveness, mercy, and merit in the first place, that is his gratuitous and unmerited gift. Francis continues. Now, this is still uh, part of paragraph 297. Quote, No one can be condemned forever because that is not the logic of the gospel. Ah, yeah, there we go again. Brilliant. That was me interjecting. Here I am not speaking only of the divorced and remarried, but of everyone in whatever situation they find themselves. Naturally, if someone flaunts an objective sin as if it were part of the Christian ideal, 
or wants to impose something other than what the church teaches, he or she can in no way presume to teach or preach to others. This is a case of something which separates from the community. Such a person needs to listen once more to the gospel message and its call to conversion. Yet, here comes the famous Vatican II, however, again, even for that person, there can be some way of taking part in the life of community, whether in social service, prayer meetings, or another way that his or her own initiative, together with the discernment of the parish priest, may suggest. Unquote. Now, here again, we're going to interrupt, because he's not actually not done yet with that paragraph. And let me just make a quick observation. Francis just said that even those people who flaunt an objective sin as if it were the Christian ideal can play a role in the life of the community. So this would mean, for example, that if a sodomite couple is out there saying that perversion is awesome and everyone should be like them, then that doesn't mean they couldn't help out with the parish soup kitchen or lead a prayer group or conduct Bible study or whatever, as long as the parish priest says it's okay. This is incredible. This is what Francis essentially just said. All right, let's continue. Still paragraph 297. Quote, As for the way of dealing with different irregular situations, the Synod Fathers reached a general consensus, which I support. In considering a pastoral approach towards people who have contracted a civil marriage, who are divorced and remarried, or simply living together, the Church has the responsibility of helping them understand the divine pedagogy of grace in their lives and offering them assistance so they can reach the fullness of God's plan for them, something which is always possible by the power of the Holy Spirit." Unquote. Now, notice that in contrast to paragraph 251, here Francis quotes the Synod Fathers and then explicitly adds that he supports what they said, whereas he didn't do that in paragraph 251, which is the paragraph uh, where he was critical of sodomite unions, or, well, rather where he quoted the Synod document critical of sodomite unions and then didn't clarify whether he agreed or disagreed. So, anyway, in this last part of paragraph 297, Francis says that the church must help those living in adulterous relationships or in fornication to reach what he calls the fullness of God's plan for them. But this implies, of course, that their current situation, adultery or fornication, fulfills God's plan in part. But that is an abominable and blasphemous claim. There is nothing whatsoever in fornication or adultery that has anything to do with God's plan. In fact, it is the opposite. It is a direct contradiction of God's plan. It's a mockery of it. Here we have people who are constantly breaking their marriage vows, if we're talking about an adulterous couple, uh, or who are enjoying the privileges of the married state without actually having bound themselves irrevocably to each other until death do them part. In other words, all the rights of the married state, but none of the duties, right, in the case of those fornicating. So, sorry, but this doesn't in any way approach God's plan. 
not even partially. Any more than stealing is but an imperfect realization of making a purchase. I mean, come on. All right, let's uh, finally move on to paragraph 298. Now it's getting better and better. Listen to this modernist blather. Quote, The divorced who have entered a new union, for example, can find themselves in a variety of situations which should not be pigeonholed or fit into overly rigid classifications, leaving no room for a suitable personal and pastoral discernment. One thing is a second union consolidated over time with new children, proven fidelity, generous self-giving, Christian commitment, a consciousness of its irregularity, and of the great difficulty of going back without feeling in conscience that one would fall into new sins. Unquote. We got to stop right here for a second. What absolute trash. First, if people are living in adultery, then that's what it is. Adultery. Sorry that's too rigid for Mr. Bergoglio, but that's just tough. Our Lord told the woman at the well flat out that the man she is now with is not her husband. Look it up. John 4.18. And then Francis talks about an adulterous relationship that is consolidated over time. You know, as in, we've been committing adultery for a long time now. And then he talks about proven fidelity. I mean, think about this. Fidelity to your mistress. Hello, Francis. Hello, Novus Ordo world. You cannot be faithful to someone you're not married to. Faithfulness refers to the marriage vow. And by being in an adulterous relationship, you are continually breaking that vow. You are making a mockery of it. You are trampling it underfoot. You are spitting on it. For Francis to state that one can be faithful to one's mistress is beyond outrageous. And then he talks about generous self-giving and Christian commitment. Yeah, well, to whom? To one's mistress. Listen, Jorge, there is no such thing as a Christian commitment to one's adulterous lover. Got that? And then uh, Francis mentions a consciousness of its irregularity. So what's that supposed to mean? That the adulterers know full well that they're committing adultery? What, that's a virtue now? <laughs> and then he talks about the great difficulty of going back without feeling in conscience that one would fall into new sins. Now that's more BS right there. Think about it. I have to continue to commit adultery, else I'm going to commit other sins? Is this how we excuse adultery now? The moral command, thou shalt not commit adultery, which, by the way, is God's sixth commandment and not a suggestion, binds absolutely. That means it does not permit of exceptions. One, one cannot claim that one will then fall into other sins. In fact, to say this is then to say that one cannot help sinning. Uh, 
that one is compelled to sin, which is blasphemy and heresy, because it is divinely revealed that God will always give sufficient grace to overcome every temptation. Council of Trent, Session 6, Canon 18. If anyone shall say that the commandments of God are, even for a man who is justified and confirmed in grace, impossible to observe, let him be anathema. And you can see that in Denzinger, number 828. And uh, this is also confirmed by a number of scriptural verses, such as um, 1 Corinthians 10.13. Let's go back to Francis. Still paragraph 298. Quote, The church acknowledges situations where, for serious reasons, such as the children's upbringing, a man and woman cannot satisfy the obligation to separate, unquote. Okay, that's fine. Of course, a couple who is in an adulterous union and has children to take care of, these people obviously cannot just separate. Uh, but they have an obligation to cease all sexual activity. Okay, they must live as brother and sister. Yes, this is difficult. And yes, I certainly sympathize with all who, because of whatever sins they committed and mistakes they made in life, are now in such a situation. But there is no other way. We all have a cross to bear, and this cross, if embraced and borne patiently, if we persevere, will lead us to salvation. What's the alternative? The alternative is damnation, and you don't want to go there. Back to Francis. At this point in the paragraph, he puts a footnote. It's footnote 329, and uh, it says this, quote, In such situations, many people, knowing and accepting the possibility of living as brothers and sisters, which the church offers them, point out that if certain expressions of intimacy are lacking, it often happens that faithfulness is endangered and the good of the children suffers, unquote. What garbage. It's absolute garbage. First, there is no faithfulness endangered between adulterous pseudo-spouses because, obviously, it is their illegitimate unions that are the violation of faithfulness. So, this is really turning things on their head. To excuse adultery on the grounds that the children would suffer if they didn't continue with their adultery is shameful. Besides, we might add that God is the author of the moral law. It is he who prescribes that adulterous couples must live in celibacy if they have children to raise. And God, being all-knowing, has already foreseen from all eternity whatever situations might arise, and yet he still made the moral law what it is. But, you know, God really doesn't... Uh, isn't part of the picture here. Francis continues, quote, Those who have entered into a second union for the sake of the children's upbringing are sometimes subjectively certain in conscience that their previous and irreparably broken marriage had never been valid, unquote. Well, that's nice. They're certain in conscience. And, and now God is somehow bound by what they've conveniently decided in conscience, huh? Individual conscience doesn't trump God or the church. Conscience must subject itself 
to God and the church. And that's that. Paragraph 299. Jorge says, quote, I am in agreement. By the way, there we go again. He does say when he agrees with the Synod Fathers. I am in agreement with the many Synod Fathers who observed that the baptized who are divorced and civilly remarried need to be more fully integrated into Christian communities in the variety of ways possible while avoiding any occasion of scandal, unquote. There is the Vatican II tactic again, that little caveat at the end, while avoiding any occasion of scandal. That is the modernist's way out, in case anyone should give them grief about their de facto acceptance of adulterous unions. See, they can always point to, to that uh, avoiding any occasion of scandal part and say, see, we didn't say it was okay. If anyone is scandalized, then we're saying, don't do it. And this is then the kind of uh, part that you will find quoted by people like Jimmy Akin and Tim Staples from Catholic Answers. Right? They'll point to that then. But of course, in practice, uh, that disclaimer will disappear completely. And uh, in fact, it doesn't make any sense because that disclaimer negates the entire first part of the sentence. And that's because it is impossible to accept an unrepentant, adulterous couple as parishioners without causing scandal. Francis continues, uh, still paragraph 299. Such persons need to feel not as excommunicated members of the church, but instead as living members, able to live and grow in the church and experience her as a mother who welcomes them always, who takes care of them with affection and encourages them along the path of life and the gospel. Unquote. Ah. How nice the church is. She doesn't tell them that adultery is a mortal sin. Now marital fidelity is just an ideal, the attainment of which they are encouraged to strive for. What rubbish. But of course it's false, probably heresy, uh, for Francis to say that unrepentant adulterers or fornicators or whatever are living members of the church. To be a living member of the church, you must be in the state of sanctifying grace. And this state cannot coexist with mortal sin. So, while they can perhaps be members of the church, uh, as defined by Pope Pius XII in 1953, and I say perhaps because uh, Canon 2357 in the Code of Canon Law does mention them as... Uh, I forget exactly how it's put, something about how they're not part of ecclesiastical life or something, but um, we'll leave that issue aside for the moment. So while they can perhaps be members of the church, they certainly, definitely cannot be living members and still continue to live in mortal sin. But hey, that's just another one of those minor details, I guess. Okay, now we come to paragraphs 300 through 311. And this is where Francis addresses what everyone had been waiting for, and that is the question whether those in irregular situations, adultery, fornication, sodomy, whatever, can be admitted to the Novus Ordo sacraments, especially the Novus Ordo version of Holy Communion. Now, I can't read it all to you, uh, else we'll never finish. And... <laughs> 
at this point, you're probably as tired of this garbage as I am. So tell you what, I'm going to summarize Francis's position, okay? I'll, I'll give some very few quotes and uh, then I'll critique it, okay? But if you want to read the actual full text of what he says in context, remember, you can find that in our show notes at Tradcast. Dot org episode 13 okay there you're going to find the link to the to the full text all right so paragraphs 300 through 311 francis is essentially saying the following you can't have a general rule yes or no for whether such people can receive the sacraments the circumstances are too varied and complex to make a general rule that's what he's saying and by saying this he has just abolish the hard and fast rule that those who are in public mortal sin, also called public sinners, must be denied the sacraments. And, uh, you know, you can even find that hard and fast rule in the Novus Order Church's own law. It's Canon 915. All right? So what Francis is saying here is new. There was a blanket rule before. And uh, in Canon law, and that required denying uh, the sacraments to such people. So from a no, Francis has now gone to a, eh, it depends. Which, of course, as we all know, is going to simply become a yes in practice. All right? And uh, he knows that too. So uh, as far as the justification given... He says that because of various factors, it is possible that someone who uh, lives in adultery, fornication, or sodomy uh, is living in these sins without being fully responsible, okay? Without being guilty of mortal sin. That is what he's saying, and it is preposterous, okay? Um, Francis wants priests to help people discern just how culpable they are in their very personal irregular situation. And this is even more ridiculous because right there, this presumes that the people know they're living in sin, okay? Besides, priests have a duty to make people aware if they're committing sin, okay? That's their job. And the fact that so far they've been barred, that these people have so far been barred from the sacraments, was an official reminder that they're in mortal sin. So this whole thing is a farce of staggering proportions. One funny thing here is that at the end of paragraph 300, Francis mentions there's a risk of causing the impression that the church is maintaining a double standard. No way. Yeah. Uh, he's priceless. Now, there is one portion I must quote because it is so unbelievable and expresses a key point of the new orientation introduced by Francis. From paragraph 301, quote, Hence it can no longer simply be said that all those in any irregular situation are living in a state of mortal sin and are deprived of sanctifying grace. More is involved here than mere ignorance of the rule. A subject may know full well the rule, yet have great difficulty in understanding its inherent values, or be in a concrete situation which does not allow him or her to act differently and decide otherwise without further sin. Unquote. I mean, wow! 
In other words, you can now be an adulterer, sodomite, or fornicator and still enjoy the life of sanctifying grace even if you are quite aware that these things are forbidden by God's law. Because, you see, you might be in a situation in which you thought you couldn't help but sin. Or because you just didn't understand why these things are wrong. I mean, just wow. This is so, this is so bad, it's downright satanic. Let me quote you another unbelievable blasphemy. It's from paragraph 303. Quote, conscience can do more than recognize that a given situation does not correspond objectively to the overall demands of the gospel. It can also recognize with sincerity and honesty what for now is the most generous response which can be given to God and come to see with a certain moral security that it is what God himself is asking amid the concrete complexity of one's limits, while yet not fully the objective ideal. Unquote. This is satanic again. Francis is saying that God himself is looking at your situation and saying, well, look, yes, you're in adultery or fornication, sodomy, whatever. And that's really not ideal, but I know things are tough. Just just do the best you can. You can keep lusting after your sexual partner for now. Just, just be a little more kind, more self-sacrificing, and help out at the local soup kitchen, and then we'll figure uh, out the sexual stuff later, okay? I mean, this is unbelievable blasphemy. Unbelievable blasphemy. This is antichrist. Francis has just made all sexual perversion into... Not foul sins that must be repented of immediately and fully with the help of God's grace, but instead, every perversion is now merely an imperfect participation in the ideal of holy matrimony, for which we should merely strive. This is the most frightening blasphemy. It is very wicked. Uh, further, he also complains about, um, ooh, yeah, general rules and how insufficient they are, as though the rule thou shalt not commit adultery were somehow unable to be fulfilled in a particular situation. You know, it's utter trash. But not just that, it's horribly dangerous trash. And then it gets kind of funny again. Francis is concerned that you might get the right... <laughs> the wrong impression. In paragraph 307, he says, quote, In order to avoid all misunderstanding, I would point out that in no way must the church desist from proposing the full ideal of marriage, God's plan in all its grandeur, uh, blah, blah. A lukewarm attitude, any kind of relativism, or an undue reticence in proposing that ideal would be a lack of fidelity to the gospel and also of love on the part of the church for young people themselves. To show understanding in the face of exceptional situations never implies dimming the light of the fuller ideal or proposing less than what Jesus offers to the human being. Unquote. This, again, is absolute and very dangerous garbage. Fornication, adultery, and any other kind of sexual perversion is introduced here as simply less than the full ideal. 
by analogy, it's like saying that formaldehyde is food that is not fully healthy, that it's, it's food that's not ideal nourishment. No, that's false. Formaldehyde is no nourishment or food at all. It is not even partially healthy, okay? It will kill you. So anyway, Francis makes this disclaimer, right, how uh, in no way must the church desist from proposing the full ideal of marriage and all that. And that's in paragraph 307. And then he immediately goes into paragraph 308, which starts with, at the same time, and then he basically undoes everything again. It's the same old game. They started it at Vatican II, and they've played it ever since, and we all know the results of that. All right. This is all of the text in Amoris Laetitia that we're going to cover. Basically, what we have here is Francis effectively granting full license to people to receive the sacraments if they so wish and their pastors don't forbid them, under the cover of the usual modernist disclaimers beginning with nevertheless, however, and at the same time. Sin is now simply an imperfect participation in virtue rather than its contradiction. And uh, I suppose the devil himself now is a heavenly angel who's just giving to God the most generous response he can amid the concrete complexity of his limits. You can't make this stuff up. For Francis, the glass is now always full. It's either half full or just a little bit full, or even if it's totally empty, it's still potentially full. The only problem is, it's not even a glass. All right, enough of this. On to our third segment, but first we'll take a much-needed break. Tradcast. Are you interested in truly Catholic radio programming? One that addresses not only the current crisis in the church and world, but also discusses literature, art, doctrine, spirituality, and current events? Then tune into member-supported Restoration Radio at www.restorationradionetwork.org. Restoration Radio, the network for the thinking Catholic. If you're looking for EWTN, this ain't it. Tradcast. And here we are again, still trapcasting like there's no tomorrow, because <laughs> for all I know, there just might not be. You are listening to a truly special edition of Trapcast, a mega episode covering Francis' post-synodal apostolic exhortation, Amoris Laetitia. 
if you're still with us, if you didn't pass out during the second segment because of what Francis was saying, then you'll be happy to know that we will now have a look at some of the reactions to the Antipope's document. And this is really the part that will be the most fun and uh, that I personally was most looking forward to. As the official Amoris Letizia Chaos Watch headquarters, we've linked to a very large assortment of reactions, analyses, commentaries, and summaries of the document by people in various camps. Novus Ordo, semi-traditionalist, secular, and of course also Sedevacantist. At this point, we're well past 150 links, so that there's a lot of content uh, you can find there. We've uh, put a link to our Chaos Watch page in our show notes uh, for this episode, so you can see for yourself what the fallout has been and continues to be. And no, really, go through our list sometime. You'll be amused at how divergent the various headlines and post titles are with anything from essentially Pope saves the church to uh, this is all bovine excrement and every little nuance in between. It's, it's quite interesting. It's quite a spectacle. All right, so let's pick out a few of these reactions and uh, look at them more closely. Perhaps we should start with the website that calls itself Church Militant. And that's Michael Voris's warehouse operation in Detroit. And um, we've come to call them Church Disneyland because it really is fantasy over there. Well, because they are in La La Land. Okay, and they demonstrated it once again with regard to Amoris Letizia. When it was published on April 8th, Church Militant released a succinct post with the title, Pope Francis Releases Final Words on Synod, Reaffirms Church Teaching on Marriage. I kid you not. And in that article, they just cherry-picked those parts that sounded fairly orthodox at least for Novus Ordo standards, and they completely ignored any of the blasphemous, outrageous, and heretical parts that we looked at earlier in this podcast in the second segment. So for them, that was par for the course. Then on April 10th, they ran a story on uh, Cardinal Walter Brandmuller, who was saying, well, the exhortation needs to be read in... Light of Tradition. Yes, thank you. Of course, Church Militant was there to cover that right away. I mean, you know, at this point, anyone with a pulse, of course, must be asking himself, if everything always needs to be read in light of tradition, why don't we just junk all this new stuff and just use tradition? I mean, wouldn't that be easier? And besides, why do we always have to read everything in light of tradition? Why can't Francis just write in light of tradition? You ever thought about that? Uh, then on April 11th, three days after the exhortation was released, Church Militant went back to something Francis had said on his trip back to Rome from Mexico back in February. And they marketed it as a papal clarification on the exhortation, when that's obviously not what it was. 
Um, the same day, April 11th, they ran a story on Cardinal Burke, Morris's favorite, by the way, he's, he's called him Pope Leo XIV before. And Burke, like Brown Miller, said basically the same thing, okay? That the key to interpreting Amoris Laetitia is in light of church dogma and discipline. Which is funny because, you know, it's getting mighty confusing with all these keys. Because Crisis Magazine, uh, they came out saying that Amoris Laetitia is the key to understanding Francis's pontificate. But then Amoris Laetitia itself needs to have a key, of course, right? So to understand Francis, we need to understand Amoris Laetitia. But then Amoris Laetitia was written by Francis and is needed to understand him. And besides, wasn't, wasn't the whole idea for Francis to clarify the position of his church on all these issues? <laughs> so... um. I don't know. I'm confused. Okay. These keys are too much. I, I can't handle any more keys. All right. Then on April 12th, Church Disneyland followed up with another story on Cardinal Burke, who said that um, Amoris Laetitia is not infallible. Thank you. Yes. Um, now, this observation, of course, would be relevant if Catholics only had to assent to infallible papal pronouncements, assuming Francis to be Pope for a minute, which is what Church Militant believes. But of course, that isn't true. Catholics don't just have to assent to what is infallible, but to everything that comes from the magisterium. That's kind of the point of the magisterium. Uh, anyway, then uh, when on April 16th, Francis himself was asked by a reporter on the plane about uh, whether adulterers now had the option of receiving the sacraments, he literally responded, yes, period. And then he referred people to Cardinal Schoenborn's explanation, not Cardinal Brandmiller's or uh, Cardinal Burke's commentary. Did you get that, Michael Voris? Are you listening? The Pope means exactly what he says. Yes, Mr. Voris. It's a good thing to remember that, isn't it? All right. Now, while Church Militant uh, did cover that in their headlines broadcast of April 18th, they followed it up immediately with a reminder that Burke said it's not infallible. So now you know why we call them Church Disneyland. And really, you should too. Come to think of it, you know, maybe that's why their flagship program is called the Vortex. I mean, a vortex spins, right? Anyway, oh yeah, Mr. Zulstorf, John Zulstorf's Father Z, as he likes to be called. Uh, now, that was rather amusing. The eve before the document was released, so that would be the evening of April 7th, Mr. Zulstorf, who had received an advanced copy that he had looked at, published a blog post saying basically, relax everyone, it's not too bad. I can't tell you what the exhortation says, but I can say that we've dodged a bullet. Yeah, well, looks like that was a bit premature there. 
So just remember this for the future. When Mr. Zulstorf gives you his expert opinion, maybe it's just not that reliable. Then uh, Rorate Chaley. Rorate Chaley, the famous indult blog. The night before the official release of the exhortation, they published a leaked summary with no commentary and with no hint as to how they had obtained it. Then on April 10th, they uh, rolled out Dietrich von Hildebrand against Francis. You know, supposedly the great counterweight to the modernist revolution. When the truth is that von Hildebrand, with his phenomenology, was extremely dangerous and in no wise Thomistic. Uh, but anyway, we can't, we can't get into that now. But that will be a great topic, actually, for a future episode of Tratcast. I want to mention this because it is a typical feature of semi-traditionalism to always oppose the Pope. Remember, that's what they believe Francis to be. To always oppose the Pope with some other big figure that they've somehow chosen to put their trust in or to uh, adhere to. And be it Cardinal Burke or Archbishop Lefebvre or Malachi Martin or uh, Michael Davies or whoever. Okay, uh, The current big hero is uh, Bishop Athanasius Schneider. Okay. Um, there's the symptom among the semi-traditionalists that always seeks a substitute for the Pope as the real guide in matters of faith and morals, the real, uh, I, I don't want to say Pope, but the, the real figure, authority figure to, to listen to and cling to. And this is particularly visible in the Society of St. Pius X, where Archbishop uh, Lefebvre is considered the guiding light much more, much more so than the Pope, right? I mean, who do they adhere to, Archbishop Lefebvre or Paul VI, right? Or John Paul II then? Um, obviously, the, the answer is clear. And this is really why we call them semi-traditionalists or uh, neo-traditionalists or even pseudo-traditionalists because they are traditional only to an extent. Their idea of tradition is actually quite novel. And, uh, well, at least when it comes to the papacy, right? And so their traditionalism really is no traditionalism at all because you can't have just a, a partial traditionalism. And don't misunderstand. I'm, I'm not trying to say that these people aren't of goodwill or that they aren't pious or, or, or anything like that. I'm not saying that at all. They, they may very well, no doubt, most of them are extremely uh, good-willed and very pious, and they mean to do the right thing and all that. But, but that has nothing to do with anything. All right, then uh, some other sources we want to look at. The New York Times uh, saw right away what was going on and, uh, when, the, when the document was issued, and they headlined, Pope Francis calls on church to be welcoming and less judgmental. Crux News also got it right and published a piece entitled Pope's Family Manifesto Offers Cautious Opening on Communion. Now, others, on the other hand, were in denial and published pieces with the following titles. Francis has left church teaching on communion for the divorced and remarried absolutely intact. That came from the Catholic Herald. Or, Francis shatters reformers' dreams with modern family document. 
That was Breitbart. Partial papal fig leaf for unmarried couples, divorced Catholics, Deutsche Welle. And uh, Pope Francis's revolution has been canceled. That was Damien Thompson at The Spectator. Then uh, Steve Skojek at 1 Peter 5 was one of the first to see what was going on with this exhortation and published a post entitled Pope Francis Departs from Church Teaching in New Exhortation. Same goes for uh, LifeSite News. Their piece was headlined, Pope Francis Opens Door to Communion for Remarried Catholics in Landmark Exhortation. And uh, then Skojak also had a piece published on foreignpolicy.com in which he denounced Francis as, quote, the dictator of the Vatican, unquote. Now, this is funny because I thought these people agreed that the papacy is a monarchy. Uh, okay, Louis Varecchio correctly noted that the devil is in the details. That is certainly true. And... Uh, Jimmy Aiken, of course, had 12 things to know and share. And one of those was the revelation, no doubt from the God of Surprises, that some people who live in fornication uh, or adultery or sodomy might not be in mortal sin. Yeah. Uh, due to various cognitive or psychological conditions, as Aiken says. So... Prepare for more pseudo-theological and pseudo-psychological toxic waste from Mr. Aiken and his friends at Catholic Answers. I mean, if these guys can defend this, there's nothing they can't defend. Patrick Archbold at the Creative Minority Report called it a shameful document. Quite right indeed, but imagine calling an official papal document shameful. Can you imagine what St. Pius X would have done with you? But then again, these people do not believe in the papacy. Because of their refusal to countenance sedevacantism, they have reduced the papacy to a parody of itself. And that's a real shame. They have sacrificed the papacy in order to have a pope. And of course, what they have now is neither the papacy nor a pope. All they have is, well, Frank, Jorge, Francis I. And they believe in a false doctrine of the papacy, a false version of the papacy, according to which the Pope is essentially just a, a nice guy who sometimes says Catholic things. And when he does, great, and when he doesn't, eh, ignore him. I mean, what a mockery of the papacy. And why? For what? I guess it is the price of not being Sedevacantist. Over at Patheos, Dave Armstrong, of course, immediately hailed Amoris Laetitia as Francis's 1968 moment. That's a reference uh, to uh, the widespread view among conservative Novos Ordos that Paul VI's uh, encyclical Humane Vitae was a great restatement of traditional Catholic teaching against birth control, which it really wasn't, but that's another topic. So Armstrong clearly jumped the gun, but I wasn't surprised at that. He's one of those incorrigible, diehard Novos Ordos in Wonderland. 
he'll be the last one to leave the new church uh, when it collapses entirely. He'll be turning the lights off, probably even after Tim Haynes leaves. I mean, Francis could basically burn down St. Peter's Basilica and build a voodoo temple on top of the ruins, and Armstrong would find a way to explain it and blame, blame those evil, radical Catholic reactionaries for criticizing it. Anyway, Roberto de Mattei called the exhortation catastrophic. Yeah, that was interesting. Antonio Sochi spoke of a turning point in Catholic doctrine and a coup in the church. And Michael Brenton Doherty accused Francis of hubris and cowardice. Robert Royal argued that Amoris Laetitia seems to be really two documents, one conservative and one liberal. And that, of course, is exactly the tactic of the modernist, who will sound conservative and completely orthodox on one page and on the next page be a raving liberal. St. Pius X identified this as one of the characteristics of modernism. And you can look that up for yourself in his encyclical Pascendi number 18. The Society of St. Pius X criticized Trance's exhortation as well uh, as a triumph of subjectivism. But of course, you know, this rings very hollow now that they're preparing to rejoin Rome under Francis, I guess, any day now. Um, oh, yeah, then the Call Me Jorge blog pointed out that the, the Bergoglios in Argentina must be celebrating because Francis, you probably didn't know this, but Francis actually has a publicly adulterous sister as well as a fornicating nephew who lives with his girlfriend. So, yeah, they're probably celebrating, though I doubt that any of them will actually dig through their famous relative's manifesto of joy. <sighs> All right. Uh, Father Ray Blake published a post in which he argued that the exhortation was neither magisterial nor very important and of course, had to be read in light of tradition. That was Ray Blake. Um, then I want to quote to you a post, it's a very short post, from the blog named Dymphna's Road, and the post is entitled, A Future Conversation? Here's what that post said. Quote, Mama, what does pastoral mean? And the mother responds, it means, child, that when your father and his new wife go to church, then the priest has to pretend that I'm dead, unquote. Then at The Remnant, Chris Jackson gave a pretty good overview of what a bunch of hooey Francis' document is, and I want to share with you one memorable quote from Jackson's piece. Quote, Christ said, be ye perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Francis would say, be ye mediocre because perfection is too excessive. Unquote. Touche. That was very good. So that was uh, Chris Jackson at The Remnant. Then Chris Ferreira. Diabolical disorientation. The famous lawyer columnist from Virginia, also chief rhetorician at The Remnant, failed to surprise. Of course, it was clear right away that for Ferreira, Amoris Letizia was going to be non-binding. Yep. 
That's right. Like everything else that he doesn't agree with. Awesome. So Ferreira wrote two things. One was a small piece for the Fatima Center where he says the following, quote, What we have here is a massive new addition to the great facade of non-binding ecclesial novelties. The trick, you see, is to promulgate the latest novelty and let people think it binds the church. And then, even though it really doesn't, it does. Pay no attention to the truth behind the facade. Unquote. So, yeah, that's uh, Ferreira's usual spiel about how everything Novus Ordo is non-binding, but it's far from the reality. We can leave that for another time. But the truth is that even though Ferreira keeps harping on the it's not binding thesis, what he really means is that one is not allowed to adhere to it. See, this is another one of his lawyerly tricks. He says that you don't have to adhere to it, but from what he writes, it is clear that he really means you're not allowed to adhere to it. Because if you do, you're putting your soul in danger, in grave danger, to say the least. So while he makes everyone believe that he saved the indefectibility of the church because, ha ha, this is all non-binding, he really hasn't done anything of the sort because non-binding is not enough. He's likening the church to a mother who doesn't push her child off the cliff and doesn't say the child must run off the cliff, but most certainly allows the child to run off the cliff. That's not a mother, that's a monster. But, you know, it's interesting. Somehow everything in the new church is fake for Ferreira, right? Fake magisterium, not really binding, blah, 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 fake saints, fake canon law, fake liturgical rite that no one really needs to attend, and so on. But fake pope? Nah, that couldn't happen. Why, that would be be a patent absurdity, right? You know, I've had enough of the silliness. Just man up and face the truth. The guy is not the Pope. But no, according to Ferreira, nothing is binding except for the idea that this abominable satanic apostate and destroyer of souls is the vicar of the second person of the Most Holy Trinity. That is binding somehow. Speaking of what is binding, wouldn't Ferreira agree that Pope Pius IX's encyclical Quanta Cura from 1864 is binding? Yeah, I think he would, right? Well, here's what Quanta Cura says, quote, Nor can we pass over in silence the audacity of those who, not enduring sound doctrine, contend that without sin and without any sacrifice of the Catholic profession, assent and obedience may be refused to those judgments and decrees of the apostolic see, whose object is declared to concern the church's general good and her rights and discipline, so only it does not touch the dogmata of faith and morals." But no one can be found not clearly and distinctly to see and understand how grievously this is opposed to the Catholic dogma of the full power given from God by Christ our Lord himself to the Roman pontiff of feeding, ruling, and guiding the universal church, unquote. That was Pope Pius IX in Quanticura, paragraph 5. 
So Pius IX just condemned Chris Ferreira and his position. And so, so much for Ferreira, the traditional Catholic. Now, in The Remnant, Ferreira just published a lengthy critique of the post-Senatal exhortation entitled Amoris Laetitia, Anatomy of a Pontifical Debacle. Throughout his essay, he keeps mentioning that it is impossible for Francis to do what he just did. Of course, by impossible, he means not that a true pope would be divinely protected from doing this, but simply that if he does do it, there will always be at least one lawyer columnist somewhere on the globe to denounce him. I mean, what idiocy. This has nothing to do with traditional Catholicism. Ferreira, just like his confreres in the semi-traditionalist world, has completely abandoned the traditional Catholic teaching on the papacy, and he makes the very idea of Pope virtually meaningless. Now, of course, Ferreira's critique of Amoris Laetitia is spot on. There's no question about that. By continuing to insist that this destruction of Catholicism is accomplished not by wicked enemies of the church, but by legitimate and true authorities in her to whom submission is owed, he is causing incalculable damage to souls and to the faith itself. And of course, as always, Ferreira spins in order to argue his position. So, for example, he says the following, quote, Thus, Amoris Laetitia purports to abolish a discipline that cannot be abolished without violating divine law. Unquote. Well, we've got news for our lawyer columnist. Francis doesn't purport to abolish a discipline that cannot be abolished without violating the divine law. He does it. He abolishes it. Maybe Ferreira hasn't realized it yet, but if as he believes Francis is the Pope of the Catholic Church, then he has full authority over the discipline of the Church. Now, of course, Ferreira will say, no Pope has the authority to abolish divine law. And of course, that's true, but the whole point is that a true Pope cannot do what Francis just did. That's why Christ gave us the papacy. He didn't give it to us so that whenever something goes wrong with the Pope, we turn to Mr. Ferreira to find out what we really should be thinking. That's not how it works in the Catholic Church. We might as well all be Protestants then. Because, you know, they say, oh, no pastor can say anything against Scripture. And when he does, he has no authority. And that's what the Protestants say, right? And, and that is basically Ferreira's understanding of the papacy. Here, let me give you another Ferreira quote. Quote, that a Roman pontiff could declare in a papal document that public adulterers of any kind exhibit fidelity and Christian commitment makes one wonder if Francis thinks that after 50 years of ecumenical dialogue, it is time for the Catholic Church to emulate the Anglican Church in recognition of Henry VIII's groundbreaking foray into Catholic divorce. Unquote. Well... Obviously, this man, Francis, is not the rock on which the church rests like on an unshakable foundation. Rather, he is sand or quicksand on which his false new church is now collapsing. 
and Ferreira is being the useful idiot who ensures that the quicksand looks and feels as much like rock as possible. That's what's going on here. All right, another quote from Ferreira. He chastises Novos Ordo pundits who are willing to swallow anything to defend the Vatican II Church. So people like Jimmy Aiken, Carl Keating, or Dave Armstrong, for example. Quote, Moreover, to admit that Amoris Laetitia is indeed a subversive document, as Philip Lawler says, would be to admit the entire traditionalist critique of the regime to which they themselves belong, this document being the lowest point yet on a continuous downward trajectory traditionalist writings have accurately tracked and rightly opposed for decades, while the neo-Catholic establishment did nothing but applaud the latest novelty. Having been so wrong for so long, they would rather go down with their sinking ship, which is not to be confused with the unsinkable bark of Peter. Their vessel is the ghost ship that came out of the fog of Vatican II and will inevitably disappear beneath the waves of history as the ephemeral thing it is. But what calamities the Church must endure until then. Unquote. Well put, Mr. Ferreira. Well put, except that it applies equally to you with regard to sedevacantism. So let me rephrase that a little bit and throw it right back at you. And this is what it would sound like. Moreover, to admit that Francis is indeed not a true pope, but an anti-Catholic imposter, would be to admit the entire sedevacantist critique of the semi-traditionalist establishment to which they themselves belong, this document being the lowest point yet on a continuous downward trajectory sedevacantists have rightly exposed for decades, while the neo-traditionalist establishment just kept whining and whining but always refused to draw the only possible conclusion, which alone can legitimize any resistance to the Vatican II Church at all. Having been so wrong for so long, they would rather go down with their sinking Titanic, which is not to be confused with the unsinkable bark of Peter, simply because it has a captain and the lifeboats do not. In conclusion, Ferreira tries to preempt those who do not buy into his position that Francis' exhortation is nothing but his non-binding personal opinion. He argues that it cannot be binding because, well, the magisterium cannot contradict itself. Yeah, very true, Chris, but maybe that should tell you something. Show us, Chris Ferreira, a single dogmatic theological manual or direct magisterial teaching that claims that there are no a priori conditions for what constitutes teaching as magisterial, and that instead it's, it's a matter of first checking to see if the teaching is correct, and only then determining whether it's magisterial or not. I'm sorry, Counselor, but your mere say-so doesn't cut it. You know, it's funny, but even in this hapless attempt to cover all his spaces, Ferreira ironically contradicts himself. On the one hand, he says, Amoris Laetitia cannot be magisterial because it's a contradiction to the magisterium, and the magisterium can't contradict itself. He says, quote, Just as God cannot contradict himself, the magisterium cannot contradict itself. For the magisterium is the teaching office of the church, which is not determined by the latest utterance of the current pope. Unquote. 
Very good. Hey, the Pope is only the head of the church and the universal teacher of the church, but of course church teaching isn't determined by the Pope. Awesome, Mr. Ferreira. Very traditional. Yeah. But let's just take Ferreira's words at face value. He continues, quote, Therefore, whatever contradicts the constant prior teaching of the church cannot possibly belong to the magisterium, no matter what formal appearances it has been given, unquote. Okay, so far he's being consistent. But now here comes this, quote, Rather, it would constitute error which is possible with any exercise of the ordinary magisterium that involves true novelties. Otherwise, we would have to say that absolutely every papal pronouncement, no matter what novelty it contains, is infallible. Unquote. Now, did you get that? Ferreira just argued that the magisterium cannot contradict itself, and in the very same breath argued that when it does, it is an error. But then, that is fine, because otherwise we'd have to say that the magisterium is always infallible. Oh man, my head hurts. This has nothing to do with Catholic teaching on the magisterium. This is simply Ferreira spouting nonsense to ensure that you don't follow Francis and yet also don't become a Sedevacantist. What theological sources does he quote to uh, back up his position on the magisterium? Well, none, of course. But hey, Francis is the one who gets blasted for publishing his opinions, yet Ferreira is doing the exact same thing. And like Francis, he too is wrong at least on the magisterium and uh, papal authority issues. Here, let me share with you some real papal teachings, binding papal teachings, I might add, which you're never going to hear about from Chris Ferreira, okay, or John Veneri, or John Salza, or Michael Matt, or any of these people. We'll start with uh, Pope Pius IX. Listen to this, quote, this chair is, meaning the chair of Peter, is the center of Catholic truth and unity, that is, the head, mother, and teacher of all the churches to which all honor and obedience must be offered. Every church must agree with it because of its greater preeminence. Now, you know well that the most deadly foes of the Catholic religion have always waged a fierce war, but without success, against this chair. They are by no means ignorant of the fact that religion itself can never totter and fall while this chair remains intact, the chair which rests on the rock which the proud gates of hell cannot overthrow, and in which there is the whole and perfect solidity of the Christian religion. Therefore, because of your special faith in the church and special piety toward the same chair of Peter, we exhort you to direct your constant efforts so that the faithful people of France may avoid the crafty deceptions and errors of these plotters and develop a more filial affection and obedience to this apostolic see. 
Be vigilant in act and word so that the faithful may grow in love for this holy see, venerate it and accept it with complete obedience. They should execute whatever the see itself teaches, determines, and decrees. Unquote. Pope Pius IX, from his encyclical Intermultiplicis, and that was uh, quotes from Numbers 1 and 7. Uh, then we have Pope Leo XII. Quote, In the Catholic Church, Christianity is incarnate. It identifies itself with that perfect spiritual and, in its own order, sovereign society, which is the mystical body of Jesus Christ and which has for its visible head the Roman pontiff, successor of the Prince of the Apostles. It is the continuation of the mission of the Savior, the daughter and the heiress of his redemption. It has preached the gospel and has defended it at the price of its blood and strong in the divine assistance and of that immortality which have been promised it. It makes no terms with error, but remains faithful to the commands which it has received to carry the doctrine of Jesus Christ to the uttermost limits of the world and to the end of time and to protect it in its environment integrity, unquote. That's Pope Leo XIII from his apostolic letter, Anum Ingressi. Okay? Yeah, probably haven't heard that before, have you? At least, uh, at least not from uh, the semi-traditionalists. Now, next, Pope Pius X. He says the following, quote, In fact, only a miracle of that divine power could preserve the church, the mystical body of Christ, from blemish in the holiness of her doctrine, law, and end, in the midst of the flood of corruption and lapses of her members. Her doctrine, law, and end have produced an abundant harvest. The faith and holiness of her children have brought forth the most salutary fruits. Here is another proof of her divine life in spite of a great number of pernicious opinions and great variety of errors, the church remains immutable and constant as the pillar and foundation of truth in professing one identical doctrine, in receiving the same sacraments in her divine constitution, government, and morality. Unquote. That St. Pius X's encyclical Edite Sepe, number eight. And then Pope Leo XII, quote, But if one wishes to search out the true source of all the evils which we have already lamented, as well as those which we pass over for the sake of brevity, he will surely find that from the start it has ever been a dogged contempt for the church's authority. The church, as St. Leo the Great teaches, in well-ordered love, accepts Peter in the See of Peter and sees and honors Peter in the person of his successor, the Roman pontiff. Peter still maintains the concern of all pastors in guarding their flocks, and his high rank does not fail even in an unworthy heir. In Peter, then, as is aptly remarked by the same holy doctor, the courage of all is strengthened and the help of divine grace is so ordered that the constancy conferred on Peter through Christ is conferred on the apostles through Peter. 
it is clear that contempt of the church's authority is opposed to the command of Christ and consequently opposes the apostles and their successors, the church's ministers who speak as their representatives, unquote. So that was uh, Pope Leo XII from his encyclical Ubi Primum, number 22. And then Pius IX again, quote, All who defend the faith should aim to implant deeply in your faithful people the virtues of piety, veneration, and respect for this supreme see of Peter. Let the faithful recall the fact that Peter, prince of the apostles, is alive here and rules in his successors, and that his office does not fail even in an unworthy heir. Let them recall that Christ the Lord placed the impregnable foundation of his church on this sea of Peter and gave to Peter himself the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Christ then prayed that his faith would not fail and commanded Peter to strengthen his brothers in the faith. Consequently, the successor of Peter, the Roman pontiff, holds a primacy over the whole world and is the true vicar of Christ, head of the whole church and father and teacher of all Christians. Indeed, one simple way to keep men professing Catholic truth is to maintain their communion with and obedience to the Roman pontiff. For it is impossible for a man ever to reject any portion of the Catholic faith without abandoning the authority of the Roman church. In this authority, the unalterable teaching office of this faith lives on. It was set up by the divine Redeemer, and consequently the tradition from the apostles has always been preserved. So it has been a common characteristic both of the ancient heretics and of the more recent Protestants, whose disunity in all their other tenets is so great, to attack the authority of the apostolic see. But never at any time were they able by any artifice or exertion to make this see tolerate even a single one of their errors. Unquote. Pope Pius IX, Encyclical Nostis et Nobiscum, Numbers 16 and 17. And I got one more, a short one, from Pope Leo XIII. Quote, the church has received from on high a promise which guarantees her against every human weakness. What does it matter that the helm of the symbolic bark has been entrusted to feeble hands when the divine pilot stands on the bridge, where, though invisible, he is watching and ruling? Blessed be the strength of his arm and the multitude of his mercies. Unquote. And that was Pope Leo Thirteenth during an allocution to cardinals on March 20th, 1900. That, ladies and gentlemen, that is what the Catholic Church teaches about the papacy. So, here's a suggestion. If you're going to be a traditional Catholic, maybe you'll want to actually embrace traditional Catholic teaching, including the teaching on the papacy. And guess what? This will require you to conclude that Francis is not Pope. And in fact, there hasn't been one since 1958 when Pope Pius XII died. I'm sorry if you don't like it, but that's just how it is. Reality doesn't care what we like. So we always have to remember it is possible for the Catholic Church not to have a Pope at a particular point in time. And yes, it is even possible 
that there not have been a pope since 1958. It is perhaps not likely, if you look at it in a vacuum just by itself, that this should happen, but it is possible. But what is not possible is that the Catholic Church should have a pope who has defected, because as we just saw in all these quotes, it is impossible for the divinely guaranteed papal chair to fail. So, reality is what it is, and we really need to understand that God expects us to look reality squarely in the eyes. That's what the saints did, right? They didn't just sit back and say, oh, but that can't be. That makes me uncomfortable. Oh, this is going to shake up my little world. What are my friends going to think? What about my marriage annulment? And and so on. The excuses are endless, right? But it's time to stop making excuses. Why would God ever put an end to a situation that those who profess to be his loyal subjects are not even willing to admit is real? So, yes, I know that there are many objections that can now be raised uh, against set of accountism, and we can, we can cover those in a future podcast. And we'll also soon start organizing an army of prayer warriors to petition God through the Most Holy Rosary to send a true pope and put an end to this horrible state of affairs that the church is suffering through currently. So yes, obviously there has to be a lot more done on our part than simply pointing out that Francis isn't pope and the Vatican II church is a fraud. Absolutely. But for heaven's sake, it all starts with that. All right, so... uh, we were talking about Chris Ferreira, by the way. I think we got a little sidetracked. Ferreira uh, wraps it up and uh, says the following, quote, Every Catholic worthy of the name has a duty to resist this attempted overthrow of the perennial magisterium by a wayward pope who clearly has no respect for the teaching of his own predecessors, unquote. Ah, yes, the perennial magisterium, a favorite with the semi-traditionalists. What the church has always taught is another way they like to put it. Well, if the church doesn't teach it now, then it's not true to say she has always taught it. Okay, we'll put a special link in our show notes to the truth about the so-called Vincentian Canon, the rule of St. Vincent of Larens, which was that a teaching is magisterial if it is believed always, everywhere, and by all. The neo-traditionalist camp has been misrepresenting that rule very badly, and back in 1875, Cardinal Johann Franzelin clarified just what that rule actually means and what it doesn't mean. And so we've published the Cardinal's explanation in English on our website, so make sure you don't miss that. The post is entitled Deflating Another Resistance Myth, and you can find it at tradcast.org for episode 13. Finally, let's come to John Venary of Catholic Family News. Uh, He played papal gatekeeper, of course, as he usually does. And, uh, well, you know, since according to his version of traditional Catholicism, too, 
The faithful have to be kept away from the Pope and can't be instructed by him unless the papal teaching has first met with the approval of Mr. Veneri or one of his colleagues. So he published a Q&A on the exhortation entitled Situation Ethics Enshrined. And one of the first questions, I love this, one of the first questions was, what are we to think of Amoris Laetitia? You know, like a Catholic should go to a journalist from New York to find out what he is to think about a papal document, right? Unbelievable. Veneri correctly identifies Francis' junk theology in this exhortation as situation ethics and uh, shows how flawed and dangerous it is. Veneri is certainly right on that, and he usually is. He's usually very good at exposing and refuting modernism. Uh, the problem with Veneri is that, just like the others in his camp, when it comes to the papacy and the magisterium and so on, when it comes to these issues, his reason shuts down uh, because he does not want to be a set of a contest. Okay? That's, that's all this is. And so here's what he says, quote, Other Catholics believe they are duty-bound to defend and accept anything that comes from the Pope even though, as Cardinal Burke noted, the document is a personal opinion of Francis and is not to be confused with the binding faith owed to the exercise of the magisterium, unquote. Now, just think about this for a minute. If I can reject what the Pope says, then why in the world should I somehow be bound by what a cardinal says about what the Pope says? Come on. You know, if, if uh, uh, Francis is giving an opinion and then Burke gives his opinion on that opinion, it, why go by what the cardinal says if you can go by what the pope says? It's, it's mind-blowing. But, but, but this is typical, though, of Veneri. Okay? He finds authorities uh, or supposed authorities that agree with him on a matter, and then he will quote them as though their words could trump those of the pope. And, of course, Veneri believes Francis to be the Pope. Now, can you imagine what Veneri would have said if Cardinal Burke had said every Catholic is obliged to adhere to Amoris Laetitia? Do you think Veneri would then be telling you to adhere to it? Of course not. And then he would have simply said, who cares what Cardinal Burke thinks? He's wrong. Right? So, don't let yourselves be hoodwinked by these tricks. Veneri is not using Burke because he accepts him as an authority. He's using Burke because Burke agrees with him. So anyway, Veneri quotes Pope Pius XII's condemnation of situation ethics, and that's very good. But, Mr. Veneri, do you not realize that if Francis is Pope, why should anyone heed Pius XII's condemnation? If Pius XII condemns situation ethics and Francis rehabilitates it, why should anyone choose Pius XII over Francis? What's good for the goose is good for the gander. If the same authority that once condemned situation ethics now advocates it, then you cannot say that the condemnation was okay, but the rehabilitation wasn't. See, this is why this whole Pope's sedevacantism issue is so important. These people are totally wrecking the Catholic doctrine on the papacy. All right. 
enough of the reactions from the semi-traditionalist camp. Let me just point out that there have also been, of course, some great set of Akandas commentaries, uh, some by The Thinking Housewife, some by Tom Droleski, one video by Father William Jenkins, and one heck of a radio show, two hours long, in which Bishop Donald Sanborn and Father Anthony Cicada take apart Francis's sexhortation. Okay? It's all linked in our show notes for Tradcast 13. All right, let me now offer some final commentary on this whole drama about Amoris Laetitia. Like I said in the beginning, this is Vatican II all over again. The verbose and obscure language, the ambiguity, the liberals declaring victory, some neocons in denial, traditionalists saying it's a catastrophe that needs to be resisted, and still others saying, don't worry, it's all just pastoral. And just like at Vatican II, where they introduced the Frankenchurch heresy of ecclesial elements that supposedly exist in other religions, so Amoris Laetitia uses the same principle of elements applied to moral theology, where you now no longer have virtue and vice, but rather just everything is virtue either in its fullness, which is the ideal to which all are encouraged to strive, or at least in part, in elements, where the ideal is not realized fully, but is approaching it, more or less. And so the Novus Ordo sect has now turned fornication, adultery, and sodomy into incomplete participations in holy matrimony. It is unbelievable. And so, thou shalt not commit adultery has now been turned into, it would be ideal if you did not put yourself into an irregular situation. We've actually created a number of memes that we're linking to in our show notes. Um, yeah, little memes where we've updated some Bible verses and adjusted the language in accordance with Francis's new revelation there from the God of Surprises. Yeah. Uh, you'll read about the woman who was caught in an irregular situation, the real reason why St. John the Baptist was beheaded, what our Lord actually said to the woman at the well, and more. Okay, So check it out. The post with the memes is called After Amoris Laetitia, illustrating the absurdity. Yeah, you know, a little bit of satire, a little bit of humor. It's a very effective way of driving home a point about the ridiculousness of the Novus Ordo establishment. You see, the new church is only dangerous insofar as people take it seriously. And so, the sooner this thing falls apart, the better. By the way, the true and truly beautiful Catholic teaching on Christian marriage, on holy matrimony, is presented by Pope Pius XI in his encyclical Casti Canubii of December 31st, 1930. We're putting that in our show notes as well. You'll notice clear language, clear teaching, and no balderdash. Okay, so that's really refreshing. None of that pastorally sensitive language stuff. No, I don't know, but back then, you know, people had no difficulty understanding the words, thou shalt not commit adultery. But now, you know, for modern man, that's clearly not a language people can understand. 
It's just too difficult. It's, we need something simpler, you know. And that's why Francis just produced 254 pages of text about joy and discernment and accompaniment and whatnot. It's just to make everything clear, you know. So that's just like at Vatican II, when they went from the Church of Christ is the Catholic Church to the Church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church. Yeah, well, th back then, too, they claimed they were making it clearer, okay? But, of course, everybody went, huh? Look, th the fact of the matter is everyone can understand thou shalt not commit adultery. Okay? And that commandment did not come with a footnote, by the way. And it did say adultery. It did not say irregular situation or imperfect matrimonial form or something like that. So all this pastorally sensitive language nonsense is the vehicle with which all candid talk about sin and guilt is to be suppressed. They want to do away with it. And this will ultimately result in a practical outlawing of the hard truths of the gospel. Okay? This way, all understanding of sin and culpability, hell, and so on, all that understanding that may still exist in some parts of the new church will be fully obscured, and uh, quite probably any pastor, any cleric who still dares to use such terminology will be severely punished. So, if you've ever wondered why we're so candid at Noble Sword of Watch with our language, why we use terms like sodomy, perversion, fornication, adultery, and so on, well, one of the reasons is that this is precisely the language that the anti-Catholic forces in the world are trying to outlaw, okay, whether legally or socially. And the most effective way to counter and combat that is to shout from the rooftops exactly what they do not want to hear. Enough of all the incessant, effeminate talk about joy and tenderness and gift and accompanying and all that. The Novus Ordo sect is a false church made by effeminates for effeminates. That's what it is, and it shows in every way. Now, let's talk about true mercy for a second. I realize that we may very well have people listening right now who, for whatever reason, are right now in an adulterous union, but who also are wanting sincerely to do God's will. And they're only now coming to realize that they're in serious trouble. Maybe you've been Novus Ordo all your life and gotten a marriage annulment, and now you're coming to realize that the Vatican II Church is a fraud, and therefore so is your marriage annulment, right? And therefore you're really not married to the person that all these years you thought was your spouse. Please do not despair. I realize that there is a lot here that may be beginning to dawn on you right now, and you're mighty torn between what is the right thing to do and what if the set of accountants really are right. And so there's a lot of pain and a lot of struggle going on in your heart. We understand that. And so let me offer you this. If you would like to speak with a Sedevacantist priest about your situation, please send us a message and we will connect you with one. 
perhaps even one in your area, depending on where you live. Okay, just email us at tratcast at novusordowatch.org, tratcast at novusordowatch.org, or just use the contact form that we're linking in our show notes at tratcast.org. All right, let me say a few more things about the people we call semi-traditionalists or neo-traditionalists. They take a recognized but resist position with regard to the people they claim are the lawful authorities of the Catholic Church. Recognize them as lawful, but refuse them submission. Resist them. Ignore them. Whatever. These people, these semi-traditionalists, even though they scream at the top of their lungs that Francis absolutely is Pope and that we cannot say otherwise— betray in their other words and in their actions that they do not in fact believe this. See, if he is the Pope, then everything the Church teaches about the Pope, about the papacy, applies to him, right? But do the semi-traditionalists believe that? Absolutely not. They treat him like the village idiot. They refuse him submission in just about everything. In fact, the only time they invoke his supposed papacy as anything of consequence is when arguing against sedevacantism, or when they need their sacraments to be valid, or when they need to have a marriage annulment. Their pope is nothing but a band-aid. The whole thing is a sham. And, and look at where their stubbornness has led them. Whether they like it or not, they are Francis's enablers. They are the enablers of his revolution. All Francis needs for his revolution to succeed is for people to believe that he is a valid pope, that he is the true and legitimate vicar of Christ, successor to St. Peter. That is what gives him all his power. And so, conversely, if you take that recognition away from him, his entire revolution will collapse. So, honestly, all these people complaining now about Francis and how horrible this all is, I don't want to hear it. They are part of the problem. They make Francis what he is. But, you know, some people just refuse to take the only medicine that can help them just because they say it's too bitter to swallow. Well, you know what? Can't help you then. Do whatever you like. But please don't call it Catholicism. I mean, these people think that a true pope can be subjected to a trial. Look at what Louis Verrecchio says in a post dated April 9th, quote, This is the very definition of formal heresy, and while I have absolutely no hope whatsoever that it will happen, Jorge Bergoglio must be tried to determine if indeed he is guilty of the same, unquote. Um, hello, Louis, if he is the Pope, then no one can subject him to a trial because no one has authority over him. Welcome to Catholicism. This was from Verrecchio's post entitled, Council of Trent Declares Let Francis Be Anathema, April 9th. Well, but, you know, if they can't uh, subject him to a trial, at least they can resist, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, on the day of the release of the exhortation, 
Chris Ferreira immediately said, let the resistance begin. And uh, John Venary, too, uh, said, prepare for battle. Yeah, the big bad resistance is back. Watch out, Francis. Here they come, the resistors. And they're meaner and badder than ever before. I mean, really? Mr. Ferreira, Mr. Venary, and everybody else? I mean, what are you going to do? What, another conference? Another book? Another video-recorded Skype chat with Michael Matt? Maybe another petition. Or how about we quickly talk about Fatima again and the consecration of Russia? How's that? Or, no, wait, I know. Diabolical disorientation. There. Diabolical disorientation? Yes, thank you. Or have John Salza tell everyone how evil it is to say that the guy in Rome who's currently destroying faith, hope, and charity and individuals and also in families is not in fact the vicar of the second person of the Blessed Trinity. Maybe that's it. Well, good luck, gentlemen. Maybe the very tactics and methods that haven't worked for you in the past 50 years will finally work now. You know, like, like Francis gives a hoot about what some retired lawyer in Virginia thinks about his pontifical document, or whether anyone resists this thing. How are they going to resist it anyway? The ones implementing it are the local bishops and priests of the Vatican II sect. Veneri, Ferreira, and all the others only exist to assure everyone that this hellish, sacrilegious, heretical, blasphemous, and satanic document comes from a true and valid pope. Oh, this is so frustrating. But these people cannot be convinced because they do not want to be convinced. And it is not possible to convince someone against his own will. No discussion is of any use because this is not a problem of the intellect. It's a problem of the will. They don't want Sedevacantism to be true. Well then, gentlemen, you better not complain about your heretical pope. Okay, because you're going to get the Pope you're willing to accept. You accept the heretic, well, you got him. At this point, let me not forget to bring up Pope Pius VI. In 1795, Pius VI published an apostolic constitution entitled Octorum Fide. It is marvelous. It condemned a lot of the errors of Vatican II, which had been put forth in their prototype stage by a local council in Pistoia, Italy. And one of the tactics used at that local council was the use of ambiguous language to introduce heresies under the guise of orthodoxy. Now, here's what Pius VI, the true pope, had to say about that. Referring to the former bishop of Pistoia, Scipione de Ricci, he said this, quote, He embarked on confusing, destroying, and utterly overturning it, uh, it meaning the true Catholic teaching, by introducing troublesome novelties under the guise of a sham reform, unquote. And then further on in his bull, the Pope continued as follows, quote, in order not to shock the ears of Catholics, the innovators sought to hide the subtleties of their tortuous maneuvers by the use of seemingly innocuous words, such as would allow them to insinuate error into souls in the most gentle manner. 
Once the truth had been compromised, they could, by means of slight changes or additions in phraseology, distort the confession of the faith that is necessary for our salvation and lead the faithful by subtle errors to their eternal damnation. This manner of dissimulating and lying is vicious, regardless of the circumstances under which it is used. For very good reasons, it can never be tolerated in a synod of which the principal glory consists above all in teaching the truth with clarity and excluding all danger of error. Moreover, if all this is sinful, it cannot be excused in the way that one sees it being done under the erroneous pretext that the seemingly shocking affirmations in one place are further developed along orthodox line in other places, and even in yet other places corrected, as if allowing for the possibility of either affirming or denying the statement, or of leaving it up to the personal inclinations of the individual. Such has always been the fraudulent and daring method used by innovators to establish error. It allows for both the possibility of promoting error and of excusing it. Unquote. Does this not sound familiar? This is exactly what we've been seeing since Vatican II. And so here you see how a true pope responds to this. Now let me continue with one more quote from Pius VI. Quote, it is as if the innovators pretended that they always intended to present the alternative passages, especially to those of simple faith who eventually come to know only some part of the conclusions of such discussions, which are published in the common language for everyone's use. Or again, as if the same faithful had the ability on examining such documents to judge such matters for themselves without getting confused and avoiding all risk of error. It is a most reprehensible technique for the insinuation of doctrinal errors and one condemned long ago by our predecessor St. Celestine, who found it used in the writings of Nestorius, Bishop of Constantinople, and which he exposed in order to condemn it with the greatest possible severity. Once these texts were examined carefully, the impostor was exposed and confounded, for he expressed himself in a plethora of words, mixing true things with others that were obscure, mixing at times one with the other in such a way that he was able to confess those things which were denied, while at the same time possessing a basis for denying those very sentences which he confessed." In order to expose such snares, something which becomes necessary with a certain frequency in every century, no other method is required than the following. Whenever it becomes necessary to expose statements that disguise some suspected error or danger under the veil of ambiguity, one must denounce the perverse meaning under which the error opposed to Catholic truth is camouflaged. Unquote. Bam! Yes, thank you, Michael Morris. So here you can see the difference between the drivel of Vatican II and the Novus Ordo Magisterium and the real Roman Catholic Magisterium. There is no doubt about which is which. Now, looking at all the Novus Ordo popes together, one can see that all the papal pretenders before Francis were a lot more dangerous than he is, because... Although he is more extreme in his apostasy, he's also very open about it. He doesn't really try to hide it. 
But his five predecessors tried to hide it much more, especially Benedict XVI, and he was very successful with that. And so, what makes Francis so dangerous, ironically, is that he makes his predecessors, especially Benedict XVI and John Paul II, look like Orthodox traditional Catholics. And that danger cannot be overestimated. I mean, look at how sly this tactic is. Everyone is now juxtaposing Francis with Benedict and John Paul. Even the remnant, the newspaper for the supposed last remaining few traditional Catholics, right, is very often now simply contrasting Francis with some Novosordo Pope before him to, to show that he is allegedly departing from the conciliar magisterium. So think about this. This extremely subtle tactic of making the pre-Francis Novosordo magisterium the standard of Catholic truth is already showing signs of success. Look at how many people are falling for it. So, think about it. Who is more dangerous? The one who openly attacks Catholicism, like Francis? Or the one who does it secretly, hiding poison in a candy bar, coming through the back door, offering the gift of the Trojan horse, like Benedict XVI with his grand concession of allowing all to celebrate the Latin Mass? Yeah, as long as they don't adhere to the traditional faith. Yep. That was basically in the fine print. The true difference between Francis and his Novus Ordo predecessors is not in the principles, but in the development or application of those principles. Whereas Benedict XVI and John Paul II may have been more covert in their modernism in some ways, they and their predecessors, Paul VI and John XXIII, had planted the seeds that are now germinating. You know, years ago, people in the SSPX slash recognize and resist camp would say stuff like, well, if the Pope ever does such and such, then I'll be a sedevacantist. Well, you don't hear that much anymore, do you? That's probably because the Pope has already done that. I mean, what more does it take? Another thing I've noticed among conservative Novus Ordos is that their outrage is strangely selective. For example, when Joseph Ratzinger, Gerhard Ludwig Müller, and Walter Kasper deny the bodily resurrection of Christ, barely anyone notices or cares. But if Francis publishes a long, ambiguous document with a footnote that allows public adulterers to go to communion, all hell breaks loose. Some people are acting like this is the first time Bergoglio has ever spoken heresy. Well, where have they been? He's claimed St. John the Baptist wasn't sure if Christ was the true Messiah, that the Blessed Mother may have thought God lied to her, that Christ himself apologized for making his parents worry when he stayed behind at the temple in Jerusalem, that faith without charity is not true faith, that there can be true martyrdom outside the Catholic Church, and on and on and on. The list is endless. Why is it that outrage is usually only reserved for things of a sexual nature? Usually the conservative novels ordos only make a big stink when it's something that touches on abortion, contraception, divorce, sodomy, stuff like that. That's when they roll out their petitions and stuff. But 
Where was the outrage when Bergoglio said Catholics and Protestants are one, are united in martyrdom? That's heresy. That's calling God a liar. Where was the outrage? Sometimes when you put stuff like that in front of a Novus Ordo or a semi-traditionalist, when you make them aware of what Francis's latest heresy is, you get a response of, oh, that's so sad, or that makes me sad. Folks, you need to stop being sad about everything. It's time to get angry. A holy, righteous anger is what is needed here. When our Lord saw that the Jews had turned the temple into a den of thieves where they were buying and selling, he didn't retreat into a corner and start sobbing. No, he got angry. Now, of course, mere anger isn't enough, but it is often necessary to get people moving. So, what can you do? I mean, we should definitely have a future Tradcast just on that topic, right? Um, but for now, we've posted 12 things you can do to help bring down the Novus Ordo Church. Okay? The link is in our show notes. 12 things. Pick one or two or six or however many work for you. Okay? And get busy. It is time to defeat this false church. And there are many more things that can be done. So that list can definitely be expanded. But that's what we have for right now. About a year ago, a number of sede vacantists in the Cincinnati, Ohio area protested Cardinal Oscar Rodriguez Maradiaga when he gave a talk at the diocesan seminary. They held up signs saying Francis is a false pope and Maradiaga is not a cardinal and stuff like that, right there on a public sidewalk where cars were driving by. They raised awareness. Okay, It wasn't a lot of people. It was only six or seven or so. But see how much impact just a few people can have. You just need to get out of your chair and do something. I mean, what a monumental embarrassment to the modernist archdiocese of Cincinnati. Here they are hosting the man who's been called the vice pope because he is so close to Francis, and he comes to visit, and there are protests outside where he's speaking, where he's being denounced as a false cardinal and his boss a false pope. I mean, wow. We can do things. All right. Well, it's finally time to wrap things up here. Again, I am very sorry for how long you had to wait to get this episode, but it took a lot of work to put it together. And I think I'm not exaggerating if I say that at least 50 hours were put into the production of this show. The research, the script writing, the recording, the editing, the optimizing of the audio and the distribution of the content and so on. So, thank you for your patience. If you benefit from what we do here, if you would like to support our work, please click on the link for the 12 things you can do to help Novos Ordo Watch and pick an option that works for you. Yes, you can even make a donation if you would like. There's a link for that too. 
it is much appreciated. Thank you for listening. Don't keep this show a secret. Until next time, God bless you.